The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show here live on The Blaze on demand at CRTV. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. It's a Theology Thursday next hour. My buddy David Limbaugh will be here. His latest book is right in the wheelhouse of Theology Thursday. We'll be talking about that. Also, coming up later in this hour, you know, there's there's a lot of a lack of self-awareness. See, I think what we think is hypocrisy is really self-awareness issues. And in light of all the bomb scares yesterday, which apparently have continued, sadly, into this morning, a lot of talk about unity and common ground and coming together. Well, last night, one of the events that used to this time of year be a perennial coming together of Americana had an opportunity to do something along those lines. And instead, um, it, 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 it did even worse than kick the can down the road. It peed on us and told us it was raining. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But let's first begin with here's what's happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by bombs we still don't know for sure what's going on if the packages being sent to various figures are actually dangerous or who's sending them but so far the targets have been george soros john brennan's care of cnn hillary clinton barack obama joe biden and robert de niro again we don't know who's sending these packages but what we do know for sure so far is they're brown in color the packages have a similar identical component and the packages all have return addresses belonging to a prominent democratic official that's according to nbc news that official we later learned is debbie wasserman schultz here are the reactions of the media and leftist politicians there's no need there's no reason to assume motives to assume anything at this point but we do know what all of these targets have in common these are all targets uh, that have been criticized mercilessly by right-wing outlets cnn president jeff zucker says there is a total and complete lack of understanding at the white house about the seriousness of their continued attacks on the media this is political terrorism this is american terrorism this is red versus blue Terrorism. Jennifer Rubin is correct. We've never seen a mass assassination attempt on this level before. And we have to do everything we can to bring our country together. We also have to elect candidates who will try to do the same. You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for. Schumer and Pelosi say time and time again, the president has condoned physical violence and divided Americans with his words and actions, expressing support for the congressman who body slammed a reporter, neo-Nazis who killed a young woman in Charlottesville, and his supporters at rallies who get violent with protesters, dictators around the world who murder their own citizens, and referring to the free press as the enemy of the people. Speaking in Wisconsin, uh, speaking quite hypocritically, I, I just have to say, uh, he talked about explosive devices being sent to former uh, government officials. 
He made no mention of an explosive device sent to this building behind me, the headquarters of CNN, a news organization he routinely attacks. He calls reporters the enemy of the American people. It appears Megyn Kelly is being forced out of NBC. She had to apologize earlier this week for these comments. What, what, what is racist? Because, because so truly, you do get in trouble if you are a white person who puts on yes, black face yes. for Halloween or a black person who puts on white face yes. for Halloween. Like, I, back when I was a kid, that was okay as long as you were dressing up as like a character. NBC announced the rest of the week of her shows will be taped. The so-called experts on Trump over the New York Times wrote a long and boring article on my cell phone usage that is so incorrect, I do not have time here to correct it. And have only one seldom used government cell phone? Story is so wrong. The Boston Red Sox invited members of their 2004 curse-breaking team to throw out the ceremonial first pitch during the World Series. They forgot one person, though. That's Kurt Bloody Sox Schilling. But don't worry, it's not out of spite according to management. The national debt has reached over $21.5 trillion. And finally, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warns against dressing up pet chickens for Halloween. And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less. We're going to have some more thoughts on this uh, round of uh, bombing threats. Uh, The AP has reported here this morning that uh, the suspicious uh, device or powder that was sent to CNN was actually not a bomb, uh, according to their source. Um, Fox News Research just put out a summary of of what's happened over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, The packaged bombs uh, have included PVC pipe, fireworks powder, glass shards as shrapnel, uh, a small like watch battery, a digital clock, bridge wire initiator slash detonator, covered also with uh, black tape, all packed in envelopes lined with bubble wrap. And I I liked this series of questions Sean Davis at The Federalist put out here just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, Questions that need to be answered here sooner rather than later. Did any of the devices contain more than trace amounts of explosives? Did any of the devices have a blasting cap slash detonator? Were any of the devices properly wired? That's a really good question to get an answer to. Obviously, because that's the difference that 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 speaks to intent, right? That speaks to whether this is, uh, uh, you know, a prank that is sadistic or this is an actual attempt at terrorism. Uh, Did any of the devices have the capability to explode? So we're going to talk a lot more about this uh, later today on our roundtable at CRTV uh, as more details uh, begin to emerge. And we're going to hold off giving any opinions on this for as long as. Uh, as we possibly can outside of those details. And again, you know, the the lack of self-awareness here from every side of this, um, but particularly on the media's side of this is just, I, I don't even know what to say, honestly. Uh, we've never seen a mass assassination attempt like this. June 2017, and I was actually on CNN the following Sunday on a panel on reliable sources. And what did we talk about that day, gentlemen? A Toning mass, down the rhetoric. Yeah, following a mass assassination attempt. So the Megyn Kelly thing. Now, I'm not even a huge Megyn Kelly fan. You know, I, she's, she's actually, if you, if you watched her show on Fox, she's fairly progressive in many of her views. She's just, uh, I would say, 
maybe a more aggressive version of a Jake Tapper. She just doesn't like horse pucky. I think that's, I think that's yeah, a fair description. I think so. I, I've never understood the conservative obsession with her. She's really opposed to numerous causes that, that we believe in. But I do think she has a critical mind, and I appreciate that. I do think she is uh, interested in, uh, in, in dispensing with uh, double standards. Did you see the way and, and along those lines, there's dressing up. When I watch that clip, I think I, I'm watching her describe dressing up as a black character who has a black face. When I think of a black face, I think of, well, Ted Danson had that stunt years ago when he was dating Whoopi Goldberg that he got trashed for. You know, I think of, you know, racist caricatures like Amos and Andy, uh, you know, Al Jolson's jazz singer from another era. Is that kind of what you think when you think of that? Yes. Is that, what do you, when you see black, when you hear black faces a millennial, Aaron, what do you hear? What, what does it mean to you? Okay. I mean, I don't actually think that, but that's the way the word is used now. So, my all time favorite Halloween costume as a kid, one of the few I can remember, is I was 10 years old, 1983, and we lived, uh, or nine years old, 1982, and we lived in Orlando, Florida. Well, uh, Kissimmee, to be specific. And uh, the Incredible Hulk TV show was, you know, the uh, big thing on Friday nights, along with Dukes of Hazard. Remember those days? Okay. Of course. And the good thing about Halloween in Florida is it's still 85 degrees. And so my mom uh, essentially handcrafted me an Incredible Hulk costume. And she, um, we had, you know, tore out the sleeves and the cutoff pants because you weren't going to, you know, freeze trick-or-treating like that at night in Orlando, Florida. It was actually going to feel pretty cool. And she went and got uh, uh, face paint. And I mean, painted my whole body. My arms were green. My face was green. My legs were green. Every part of me that was not covered by shredded clothes was green. And we we dyed my hair the Lou Ferrigno kind of orange tint, you know. And I mean, I I I was I was nine years old. That's one of the very few Halloween costumes of my childhood I can remember because of the effort my mom put into that. If 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 I'm dressing up as somebody in a way that is honoring. Of a, of a character that is of a different skin pigment. I, I'm trying to figure out why is that racist? I mean, if my kid came to me and... appropriating your culture and showing dominance over that culture, Steve. Okay. So if my kid comes to me and says, if Noah comes to me and says, you know, I want to be John Stewart Green Lantern for Halloween next year, and he doesn't wear a mask, you know? Um, do I tell him you can't be, because if he walks around in a Green Lantern costume and he's white, everybody's going, is anybody going to, first of all, if anybody knows who the John Stewart Green Lantern is, but those who do, who, who know anything about the Green Lantern Corps, they're going to assume he's the Hal Jordan Green Lantern of our childhood. And if he insists when he goes and knocks on the door, no, I'm John Stewart Green Lantern. That's why I'm not wearing a mask. And like, well, who's the John Stewart Green Lantern? He says, well, he's the black one. And like, isn't it more racist to be the black character when he's white, I, I can't follow all of this. Well, I just, I want to tell I, me what I, I don't I just, know what any I, of this means. Let, let me let me reeducate. I mean, educate you, uh, Steve. I mean, it's um, it's like I said, um, don't show dominance when you when you appropriate another culture, especially if you're Anglo. Actually, only if you're Anglo. Anglo. Um, when you appropriate another co- culture, like using blackface or using any character or any customs or food or 
cultural norms or trinkets or anything from another culture, you're showing dominance over that culture. Because for centuries, Anglos have oppressed those of different colors, especially black. And so when you do that, you're offending some people because you're probably triggering them and it brings back so many memories and you just can't do that because, because we don't want our feelings to get hurt, Steve. That's why. That's why. So my acknowledgement that in this particular area, your way of life is superior to mine. So I want, I want to embrace it and emulate it which is an act of submission. Just, I'm embracing I, and emulating you. Don't, don't think about it. That's just, that's oppression. Don't, don't think about it. You're just racist, okay? Don't think about it. You're just racist. I, I really, I know, I know on our side, we think, well, if you're just, you know, not a cultural Marxist, they just get to call you racist no matter what. And I know that there's truth to that. I, I can promise you there's very few people in conservative media with a platform our size or bigger that has done more panels on MSNBC the last seven years than I have, Okay. So you guys, I, I don't, I, I don't need uh, MAGA, MAGA, MAGA forever on Twitter uh, with their 14 followers to you know, send me an email and explain to me how the game works. I, I was on the front lines of this long before Cheeto Jesus came down the damn elevator shaft. Okay. But there, there's gotta be more to it than that. Okay. And if, if we asked them what they seriously, what their issue seriously was with someone saying, you know, I kind of really like the way your culture presents this or cooks this dish or or this particular ideal, and I kind of want to pattern my own self after it. Why would that be offensive? Because they hate you. Is there, that's all. There's no reason other than that. No, that's I, it. Okay, that's and, and if that's the only reason, I'm fine with it. I just don't want to, we don't like straw men on this show. We don't do straw men. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that sometimes the one-dimensional argument isn't true. All right. We're not saying the one dimensional argument's never true. We're just saying it's real easy to just jump to that. And you wouldn't want people one dimensionally, shallowy, in a shallow, vapid manner, defining who you are and where and what your motivations are. And so that whole love your neighbor as you love yourself thing. Few, I wasn't doing that a few minutes ago. I'm actually giving you the the intersectional argument as to why they will say back to you what I just said a few minutes ago. You can't win this game. The only way to win is not to play and then destroy the game because you are simultaneously being told all the time by the same people that, uh, you know, movie theaters, networks, they're racist if they don't have enough of X, Y, and Z people in their movies. So you have to make these things, but then you also can't dress up like them or look like them. Or if you're doing a show about a gay character, that character can't be a straight person playing them. Uh, that's an This is an impossible, I mean it, impossible game to win. The question you should ask these people, why why should Disney be even a, if you can't dress up as a character why why aren't you protesting Disney for making these movies at all if the very act of embracing a culture on any level by the pale face is somehow a violation I, don't play this game don't overthink it don't think about it at all defeat it period so based on what you just said it appears Megyn Kelly has had made the mistake here um, that a, a lot of your progressive kind of Republicans make with these leftists in, in the assumption that we are the radicals, we're the crazy people for pointing out who these leftists are, as you just did, and that they can be accommodated and they can be met halfway and they can be satiated. And 
So Megyn Kelly goes to NBC. The ratings have not been good. But you know what? Nobody at NBC's ratings in their news department is good, guys. Like, you know, if you took the total viewership of all of the the three major networks, morning shows, the Today Show, CBS News This Morning, and Good Morning America, if you took their total view, their total viewership, it would be something like 12% of the people that voted in the last election. All right, so no, none of these ratings are any good. None of them are. But, but, but she was a big prize. They paid, what was it, 70 60, million or something? Yeah, 69. Yeah. All right, so 70 million or whatever for her. They bring her in. The ratings are bad. But, but they can't, she's a woman, and so in, in, in a way, the, this intersectionality standard you guys are defining is, has probably protected her a little bit, right? So they can't get rid of her for bad ratings as a woman because every woman and man on the air at NBC has bad ratings because they all do, okay? So they can't get rid of her for just performance. So they kind of need her to step in it, basically. They need her to, to violate the rules of engagement along the lines of what you just described. Um, she went right up to that line in the Kavanaugh hearings. We sat here and watched it that day in the studio and she was the only person on the panel that was adamant. You don't just, you don't believe all women, women can lie. All right. I'm a defense attorney. She's like, you know, you get, you get to defend yourself. Remember we sat here and watched all that. All right. So she, he, she kind of went up to the, probably what the acceptable line for critical thinking is permitted over there at 30 rock by going there. And then it was just a matter of, um, she played in traffic violated the very laws of intersectionality that probably stopped her from getting canceled a year ago when her ratings have been terrible this whole time. And that's, and they, she just kind of gave them the excuse they were looking for. Is that kind of what you're saying here, Todd? Yeah, I am. You know, that Seinfeld episode, uh, where Kramer refuses to wear the ribbon Mm -hmm. and that's no, that the mob of, that was part of the, the cause du jour that who, who will not wear the ribbon? This that this is where we live. It, yeah. She she made the mistake of thinking she could go in in there, and and that is on her. Um, and ultimately triangulating her way through this um, again, that's impossible. When they hire somebody like her, one of their hopes is that they get to ultimately do this to her. Yeah, I mean, when she was going. Hold on, hold on, one second, Aaron. Say that again. When they bring Megyn Kelly or other people like her on, who in some way, shape, or form can be legitimately identified with the things of the right. I think she can. She came from Fox. That's sure, she got some street cred from that. Yeah. Th- they, there are many of them who are hoping that sooner or later they get to do this to her. Yeah. I, I wanted you to yeah. say that again. <laughs> One, because it shocked me to hear you say it out loud. But two, I wanted our audience to watch you say it again. Or if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, et cetera, hear you say it again. Because I want to make sure they understand whether you agree with what he just said or not. This isn't, you're not throwing some clickbait out there. This isn't no. your hot take. I, they tried to do it to me. I saw this with my own eyes. I saw them tell me things that made it abundantly clear that they, they just couldn't flat out say what they were trying to do to me. Uh I've, I've, I've lived this. So th- they want to have scalps. This is who they are. And Megyn Kelly's mistake, therefore, in your mind was getting into bed with these people in the first place. Is that, is that, is well, that essentially well, what you're that, saying? That's one of them. Or going in there and, ju- you know. Assuming if, she'd be treated professionally, if, fairly. Yeah, just go, you go, if you're going to take this job, <clears throat> pardon me. just go in there. You, you can't give a damn. 
you can't. And and mm. she, I, I mean, she kind of took the edge off. I think she thought she could be fun and likable and dance every once in a while. No, soon. yeah, that 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 gifts never. She, going if away. she was, uh, she would have had the, the same. Would everything would be true about what I would have said? But she would have a better chance of surviving longer if she appreciated who they were and just was flat out better at them. Them, like I, I know you think you're bad, but no. You're not as bad as me. I mean, you're never going to corner me. You're never going to get me. You get you. That's the attitude. If you're going to go in and that's the attitude. Hey, yeah. Steve Dace, like, um, yeah. you're full of it. I'm walking off your show live. Yeah. That's the attitude you have to be willing to go in with. Not that they're ever going to hug you and like you. They even the ones with a smile on my face. And I've just been around these people a lot. It's I've just happened to work up until this point. Most of my life has been spent being the the right wing guy in left wing dominated things, um, and the cult, the personality is only getting more wicked. They hope that sooner or later they get to do this to you. All right, Aaron, I'm sorry, you were going to chime in. Go ahead. Oh no, I mean it was nothing as eloquent as, as Todd, but it is it is the analogy. I mean, she's sitting there on that round table. You know, why is it racist? This is the way is things used to be when I was a kid, and at that point. Uh, everybody else on the p- panel is is going all idiocracy. The doctor in idiocracy. Why come you don't got a tattoo? Uh, that's that's basically <laughs> what we just witnessed there as well. And as far as what Todd is saying, that is an incredibly incredibly um, salient point. We just talked Todd and I before you came in the other day, Steve. Uh, we talked about Ron DeSantis uh, during his debate, Florida gubernatorial candidate. Yeah, during his debate with Andrew Gill- uh, Gillum. The other day, it wasn't the most recent one, but it was the one I think over the weekend where he was asked about whether or not Donald Trump is a good role model for children. He came out totally flat footed, started talking about Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem. How are you not prepared for those types of questions? You're not prepared if you're not going into that environment knowing who you're up against. You are up against basically everybody, probably if the media is uh, at least an extension of the national media down there in Florida. Uh, how do you come out flat-footed? How are you not prepared for stupid questions like those? That is that th- Those are the type of attitudes that we need to have when we go into this arena. Not that we always need to be paranoid all the time, but just be prepared that you're not going to get a fair shake ever. Ever? Ever? E- ever. He gets it. So Megyn Kelly's mistake here was she thought she could find a middle way. No. She thought she thought she could find she thought she could give them David Gergen's politics without David Gergen's or Anna Navarro's slavishly slavish devotion to their narratives and talking points and non-critical thinking, right? And that if if she gave them a half offering, um, and it, she'd be treated fairly and welcomed into the tribe, and that's just not how this works. Well, she also kind of b- believed her own. Uh, horse pucky that she somehow transcended something right. by how big she got at Fox right. News. Um, that that she got big because of we live in these silos and echo chambers. She she had to be at Fox News to be what she became. If right. she if she came up through the ranks anywhere else, um, I, I she's she is smart. She is talented. She's clearly beautiful. So she has the package to be successful on some level. But, but she reached demigod status because she was at Fox. I think that's an excellent point too. Her success at Fox, I think, is because the audience recognized that she was more of a progressive, and therefore her willingness. You know, Fox has has people that uh, you know um, that uh, all these networks hire people from the other side of the political aisle 
to essentially be foils. And sometimes they're hired, you know, to uh, you are you are you are there and you can really give your company line from your perspective. And sometimes you're there so that so that you're the you're the Republican contributor on CNN so that they can say they can trot you on to rip the Republican narrative that day when they need you to. And you're the Democratic contributor at Fox. so They can trot you on to rip the Democratic narrative that day when they need you to. Kirsten Powers, who we were talking about in this spot yesterday, they used to be her role on Fox. That's when she wrote the book you were talking about, yes. the silencing. Kirsten Powers was brought was was there. Her role on Fox was to be the former Clintonista who had had a Christian conversion and 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 was there to 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 talk to her friends on the left about how they were going too far. Right, that was her role. And and, and yes, this stuff is scripted. It is orchestrated, guys. I mean, I I had a producer at a major cable news network when I went in there for an interview uh, at, towards the end of the 2012 election, who literally told me that the direction they would take their channel would depend on the election results. She told me that right there to my face. Okay, you're, this, is all, this is all pro wrestling. This is not news. It's infotainment. It's done for your particular audience. Okay, And the audience that they want to reach, it's not even done for a mass audience. It's for the audience they want to reach. And if it, even if it generates no ratings, say CNN, see, there's somebody that CNN is satiating, their, satisfying with... with the driving into the ditch of their credibility they're doing on a daily basis. And that's what this is. It's, it's the term our buddy David Yepsen used the other day. This is yellow journalism is most of what we're talking about. And for all the problems we have with media bias and the like, cable news is the, is the, it's, it's the eighth ring of hell. It's the, it's the darkest of the dark. And it, it's not darkest before the dawn in, in ca- at cable news. It's the darkest. It, that's pitch black. Nothing, no, nothing. It's a black freaking hole and is that a racist statement now using that comparison? So her mistake was she misread her success. Yes. The fact that she was sort of the Jake Tapper of Fox, conservatives liked watching her because you almost felt like if our narrative passed her smell test, then we were right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That was the role she played. And I, I think she thought she was going to get to do this in, on the other side and and present herself as more likable and that awful gift with her and Rhoda. And that's her name. Is it Rhoda? The gal that she was, that she does that morning show with, I think is her um, name. Okay. <clears throat> um, but the reality is the, when she began to think this was her success was ever about an honest presentation of her intellect and ability. That's when she, that's the mistake that she made, right? Yeah. Well, one of the mistakes she made. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, is given all the advantages you articulated that she had, I think this is an important conversation about media culture we're having right now. Given all the, all the advantages she brings to the table that you articulated a minute ago, Todd, could a case be made that if, if she can't navigate the media culture you're describing, then there's, there, there's almost no hope that almost anybody that, was, that would not be willing to conform to the Borg would be able to do so. The, the media is just, and I'm sorry, you just yeah. asked Todd. But oh. The media is just, I, it's, it's an extension or maybe the mouth of the river um, of, of the rest of leftist culture. You look at this in academia, you look at this in yes. any other institution that the left, that progressivism has taken over, it is not a meritocracy. It is, um, it is, a, it, it, it is a, it is the the totem pole of of um, intersectionality. It, it if there's a word for that intersectionalityocracy, that is what it is. You will only get so far as your status on the intersectionality totem pole 
will get you. There is no room for merit anymore. She is okay. Let's put aside the the looks for one for for for, for now. She's just good. She's she's intelligent. She's she. I think objectively, she's articulate. She uh, can deliver a newscast. She can deliver a story really well. Um, and then add to that the fact that she's a woman and that she looks good, which is which are important things yeah, for a visual television. Medium. It is yeah. a vid- visual medium. She has all of the things that you just articulated, and I did as well. That would uh, lend itself to being very successful in that environment if it were a meritocracy, but it's not because it's just an extension and or the mouth of the river of the rest of progressive culture, and that progressive culture has no room, no room for honest assessments, no room for anything that resembles objectivity because it is a cult, as we have discussed numerous times. This is why we've had what you just said is why we, I, I you guys have worked with me for over two years now. What? It, Amount of times we've discussed Megan Kelly ever go two. Oh gosh, it, the only time we talked about it is in any significant amount was after the initial yep. presidential debate yep. that she yep. hosted. I, other than that, I have no recollection of and, it. And that's because if what you just described, I really don't care what happens to Megan Kelly's career. It's not my business, and I'm not. I've never been a huge fan of her work anyway. Um, but it speaks. We're, we're, we're getting a window to the soul of leftist subculture here. Now, the, the mainstream media culture, newsroom culture, it's one of the central hubs of the leftist hive mind. And we're kind of getting a chance to see how it operates, how the sausage is made. And the way that, th- that she's being treated has repercussions, I think, for a lot of us if these kinds of people gain total cultural hegemony along the lines of what Aaron just said. Here's the reason we just spent 15 minutes talking about Megyn Kelly. And I think you actually had something else you want to ask me about this topic, Todd. But here's why I think this is important for our audience and for us to have this conversation amongst ourselves uh, as those who live in uh, the other America, the what's left of America, right? So our show position is there are two Americas right now. There's the left America and then there is what's left of America. Okay, for those of us that live in the what's left of America, you know, when when we hear when we talk like about the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. And and one of the reasons we talk about it is because it's in the context of this is this is an institution that the culture looks to for guidance, healing, justice to to light the way in these matters. Right. And um, when they are in a position of prominence and influence and power. To, to light the way on that path, you bet it's news when they send us down the wrong road. Or when we have, you know, uh, Protestant televangelists uh, pilfering people, out, you know, old ladies out of their retirements and things of that nature. These are, in, what, in the what's left of America, the church is, a, is an institution of, of prominence and influence in, 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 in that American culture. And so you bet the rest of the culture tends to and should pay attention to how it conducts its affairs internally and treats other people to kind of get a hint about whether, you know, if, 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 if it's my turn to deal with that institution, how might they treat me? What might they offer me? See where I'm going with this? Yeah. In, in, the, in the left America, the media, the mainstream media is one of those, is, is, a, is, is a churchian kind of an institution in that America. And I think as you're watching them 
relate to somebody who attempted to bridge this divide between these two Americas, who attempted to have a, a foot in both of these camps. And you're watching the way they're treating her right now. If, and this was after they essentially wooed her, seduced her in a way. In term, I mean, they wooed her to, to come hither, right? Yeah. To come to join us. She walked away from Fox to, do, to go and do this. And, and so somebody that they targeted, somebody that they, um, that, that they looked at and said, hey, we think this is the person that can bridge the divide between these two audiences. If they're going to treat her this way, then I think for the rest of us, it, it's, new, it's noteworthy to pay attention to what they might do to, the, to, to those yeah. of us who, have, who won't even attempt to meet them halfway, who openly oppose them. What do you think they might do to you? If they're gonna if they're gonna do this to yes. somebody that they wooed and seduced to come and join their team, right? That's exactly right, and that's why I just wanted to at least get a chance to ask you a two part question, and it's ultimately a rhetorical question. The first part applies to me. You've known me now uh, for a long time. I mean, at least a decade and a half. You know my capacities in terms of a writer, a thinker, things like that. Occam's Razor. Part A of this is: Is there any way? I could have a 12-year career at the Des Moines Register and still ultimately be, forget, not necessarily become an editor or anything like that, but still be at the same level as as I started at when I was 12 years into it. You've worked there, so you Mm -hmm. know. Is there any explanation other than the fact that they ultimately liked purging me like they uh, purged merge, uh, Megan Kelly. And part B of this, is there any other exclamation for the fact, and you didn't get a ch- the chance to talk about this, but you should, that a walking, talking, freaking statue named Kurt Schilling was not throwing out a first pitch with his team. Is there Occam's razor on either front? Is there any explanation other than the fact that you are marked? Well, for those of you that are new to our show here on the live on the blaze, one of the one of the, our, our mottos that we didn't get to during freshman orientation last week is that Occam's, Occam's razor is always in effect. And for those of you that don't know what that's a reference to, Occam's razor says, when in doubt, the, the explanation uh, or conclusion that requires the fewest assumptions is the most likely always true, okay? And uh, in other words, the one that takes the fewest leaps uh, in order to arrive at. I, I've used this analogy to explain Occam's razor before. Remember the show, The X-Files, right? And so... Mulder just looked at lights in the sky and, um, and, and crop circles and decided two plus two equals four aliens are among us. Scully didn't want to believe aliens were among us. So she would come up with 75 different theories that required 97 steps to arrive at. All right. When by the end of the show, you realize it's just a lot simpler to believe in little green men. <laughs> yeah. She was the Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> yes. That, that is, so Occam's razor is on Mulder's side. That's kind of what you're attesting yeah. to. And if I didn't have my own experience, and, and the thing too, and I say this as your friend, and you would say this to me too, is you can't allow what happened to you and any anger or resentment you may or not may or not may or may not realize or want to admit to cloud your judgment, which is why if if I had not had a similar situation at the Des Moines Register, where they came to me four years ago, like NBC News came to Megan yeah. Kelly. 
And their managing editor literally came and took me to lunch and had, and set me down and looked me in the eye and said to me, we just had an Iowa caucus cycle and, and our readership was way down because Barack Obama was up for reelection. And so he wasn't challenged and Republicans don't read our newspaper. You've got a national name amongst conservatives in Iowa. We want to bring you in as a columnist. And, and we've seen you interact as you know with MSNBC in the last election, and and stay conservative without treating people poorly and being respectful, and and you have a, a mass audience in our state, so we think you're a good bridge. Similar conversation, right, with Megyn Kelly and NBC News. We think you're a good bridge to reach an audience that has turned us off. And I sent them the first column which after they announced it on the front page of the newspaper, made a whole big deal about we're hiring Steve Dace to be our new Sunday columnist at the Des Moines Register. And the first column I wrote was not even actually going after the left. It was attacking our Republican governor for the right, from the right for not keeping his promise to shrink government and defund Planned Parenthood. They never ran the column, never explained to the audience publicly why they never ran the column. And then when I finally got them on the phone, they, tried, they, they basically lied to me and opened themselves up to all kinds of potential legal uh, action I could have pursued because we had a contract, guys. But I, I just, it wasn't worth it to me to pursue it. And and frankly, their parent company, Gannett USA Today, called and offered me a chance to contribute to them, which is a far bigger platform anyway. And that that means more, the, the, the platform means more to me than winning a point in a lawsuit. So I just let the whole thing go. So if I, if I didn't have that experience myself with them, then I might be more inclined to say, boy, you sound like you still might be a little bit angry about what happened there. But since I have had that experience, I know there's if, if you do sound angry about what happened to you, there's justification for it because the same thing happened to me. Yeah, and it's a, it's right along the lines of what is went on here with Megyn Kelly that, is what you're describing. That's my point. How else do you describe this? And I'm glad you brought up uh, Kurt Schilling. So for those of you that don't know. Uh, we just started at CRTV. We started a new sports show that Kurt Schilling and I do every day. It's just it's real simple. We talk sports. And it is just about sports. I mean, my, my, the number one thing when CRTV asked me if I would do this show, number one rule I had, I'm not, I'm not doing right-wing sports talk, okay? And God bless those that are out there doing it, that are kind of doing the yin to ESPN Jang. But for me, I get, I do politics. I've done politics full-time for a living for 15 years. It's never been more toxic than it is right now. I need escapes so that I don't allow this to consume me. So I was willing to do this if it would be an escape, I mean, we're going to talk sports. If you want me to do the right-wing fact-checking of ESPN, I'm out. Go do, get somebody else to do that. It'll probably have a huge audience. There's definitely a market for it. I just emotionally, mentally, spiritually, I, I, I'm injecting enough of this toxin every day um, on the front lines. I don't, I don't need another outlet of, you know, I don't need another main line of po- political toxicity into my veins. So go get somebody else. And they're like, no, no, no. We want to do just a show that just talks sports. All right, then we're going to do it. And so all Kurt and I do is for 25 minutes every weekday at CRTV.com is, you know, I come up with a list of sports topics with his guidance and we get to as many of them as we can. When 25 minutes is done, we're done. And even though Kurt's got a podcast with Breitbart and, and some other folks he works with where he is, hyper political and partisan and everything else he enjoys the heck out of it as well because you know yeah. he he loves sports it's, it's it's an escape it's a lot of fun i mean yes. steve's um just uh, his analytical mind plus the, the perspective that kurt brings from being a world-class athlete it's a lot of fun so i've gotten to know kurt we've not yet met in person but in this day and age you can actually get to know people a lot more because of the 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 digital age in which we live you know, so I've gotten to know Kurt a little bit over the last few months. We launched this show in July, and him and I built a really good rapport 
And um, he's just a great dude, man. He's just, if, if you never listen to his political podcast at all, and just sit down and talk to him about dude stuff and sports stuff and his sons and his family and stuff, you, you would just be like, he's just like every other cool dude you've ever met. That's such an important point because all of us in this room, we have no problem putting politics down right. and just talking about it. That's the big, one of the big yes. differences. They can't stop. Yes. yes. They won't stop. And, you know, we heard a lot of talk yesterday from the former vice president, Joe Biden, and a lot of others about the need for more civility. The need for more unity. We heard a lot of talk about that yesterday in light of all these bomb threats we dealt with in, in, our, in our political culture. Well, tell me a place where, other than the military, and that's going away, tell me a place other than the high-end achieving clubhouse locker room of a major college or professional sports franchise we're guys from literally all over the country, and in the case of Major League Baseball nowadays, all over the world now, are, are coming from multiple hemispheres, religions, belief systems, setting those things aside over the course of 162 games for the common goal of getting to this point in the season right here, the World Series. Tell me, tell me where, what would be a better example to set for the culture of, of carrying out those calls for unity and and perspective than that. And last night, the Boston Red Sox had a chance to do that. And they had a ceremony to honor the 0-4 team that broke the curse. A bunch of them came out there and threw the ceremonial first pitch. And a guy that just lives a stone's throw from Fenway Park, Kurt lives on a farm outside of Boston, never got invited. And you didn't hear about it from Kurt. He didn't bring it up because he won't. Because that's just not who he is. In fact, I got a text from him last night at dinner. He goes, I just got home with the family. I saw him trending number one on Twitter. What did I do? Okay. Well, he didn't do anything. What happened is Dan Shaughnessy, the great sports writer at the Boston Globe, pointed out that of all the luminaries on that team who were, who were there to throw out the first pitch, there was one glaring omission. And it was the guy that pitched, arguably, you could make the case since Don Larson's perfect game, the only perfect game in World Series history. You can make a case, the most famous pitching performance we have in, in the in the in World Series history since Don Larson's perfect game was Kurt Schilling's bloody sock. It is one of the singular greatest moments in modern baseball history. You're the baseball aficionado. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm certain you're. It's not certainly wrong. in. The, it's at least in the conversation, man. At no, least. It's, you're, I mean, you're downplaying it. It's it's it is the conversation. He is as responsible. He literally he literally risked a fourteen million dollar a year career that night. Life-changing amount of money, as Howie Mandel used to say on Deal or No Deal. He literally risked that that night to pitch that game. And to win that game and to get that franchise over the hump and to win that ring. And he was also involved in the post-9-11 World Series with the Diamondbacks and the Yankees when that did help to bring the country together after a cataclysmic moment. And for the Red Sox to leave him out of there and then claim they forgot It's so demeaning, so dishonest, and Kurt won't say this, so I will. When people are this dismissive of you that they won't even tell you the truth anymore, that they don't think you're worth saying, you know, we just, your political opinions are really charged and we didn't want to risk you getting booed out here and we want this to be a great event and that's why we didn't invite you. But when they, when they, think, when, when they, when they think so little of you, 
they're, they're beyond patronizing that they literally, they don't even just pee, in, pee on you and tell you it's raining. They hold your mouth open while they urinate in it and then tell you it's raining. That's, what, that's, that's the level of playing you for a fool that happened here. And if we, can't, if we can't set politics aside, if you know Kurt Schilling for five minutes, the last thing he was going to do is run out on that field with a MAGA hat, okay, or an infidel t-shirt like he wears on his Breitbart podcast. He understands, he's a, guys, he lived, he lived for eight months out of the year, for 20 years of his life, in one of the most diverse, one of the most cont- uh, combustible atmospheres you could imagine, a major league base, a professional major league baseball clubhouse, where these guys travel the country together and live together eight months out of the year from spring training until they go home in the fall. So the idea that he would not understand the occasion, he wouldn't understand that this is not the time and place to have these iron out these things, he would have gone out there just like those guys did. And I asked him today, so Kurt, you, were, you had a 40-man roster on the 04 Red Sox. You were the only conservative, the only Republican on the roster. He said, of course not. And just on Tuesday, we did our World Series, or you guys did your World Series preview, and asked him what his favorite memory of the World Series was. Um, yeah, I think he understands the, the, the occasion that it is, because his favorite memory of the World Series was going and spending time with first responders yep. and... Um, and, and different law enforcement around New York after 9-11 and recognizing that baseball gave him that opportunity yep. to essentially be unified. That was his memory. So, of course, he's not going to go out there with that and just abuse the occasion. This was a, a political statement made by a Major League Baseball yes. franchise. That's all that it was. Exactly that. So let's go right back to Occam's Razor, and that, that's all that it was. Period. End of sentence. And, and that's the thing. When, when they won't even give you, when left America won't even give you the courtesy of opposing you honestly to your face anymore and treating you. This is a guy that, that risked his career, his future earning potential. He played in the majors five, six more years after that night. Treat him like a man. You know what I'm saying? At least man up and say to him, Kurt, you're too politically combustible. We're a pretty blue state. and We got an election in two weeks. And we, it's just, you know, man, you made your bed. You may, you took you get you chose to get political that you made that adult decision. Now we're going to make an adult decision. We don't want to hear some of our fans booing you at Fenway Park. At least treat him like a man, Todd. At least do that. But to to punk him like that when they when you go to that card, screw your calls for civility. I'm not even a human being to you. I'm not someone even worthy of of addressing man to man and treating me like a man and being honest with me that you just think you can punk me like that. And then and this this is the seventh grade. Well, we forgot. We just forgot about him. You know what, man? Screw every last one of you. And he won't say it, so I will. Screw every last one of you for that. At least man up and be honest with him. He, you, he owe, you owe him that for what he did to you, for your team, your city, your franchise, your history. Because not a damn one of those guys on that field last night would have a ring if it weren't for Kurt Schilling. And you know why they do this? It's for one of two reasons. Why they do this the way that they did it to, to Kurt Schilling. And this type of thing has happened before. The reason why people, progressives, do this the way they do this without saying or just peeing on you and telling you it's raining is either one, they're true believers in progressivism, so they're willing to take a hit, a, a PR hit after that, or two, they know that there's not going to be one. That's one of two reasons. Either one is chilling. I know you, 
absolutely wanted me to address this topic. You've got I some thoughts it. on it. Well, I needed it. I, and, well, you basically, just by leading into it, uh, you gave me the opportunity to say, and it's about what you said about if they do this to him. I mean, really, oh, he's a walking, talking statue, as close a thing as we have to um, in Major League Baseball uh, because of uh, that event. Uh, I mean, th- there's nothing in sport uh, that quite compares uh, to that 3 0 comeback. That was impossible. The impossible happened, uh, and the Red Sox did it. And they're here in the World Series again. And to not be able to honor that in any way, again, I don't, I, I, I don't know ultimately what the players out on the field knew, but to, if, the, if they in fact knew that this was going down and Schilling wasn't going to be there, if they knew that ahead of time, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed on all of them for stepping out there and not standing with their brother in arms. Uh, that's uh, shameful. That as was well. my concern too. I asked Kurt on our taping this morning if he's heard from some of his former teammates, and he said, yeah, nothing I want to share, but... Uh, he's heard from quite a few of them that were supportive because I'm with you on that, man, that I I've got to believe they didn't have a clue that that was going to happen. I have to believe that. And if, if they did and they still went out there and acted like it was okay, man, I, I, I don't care that I've, I never made it to a major league bait. That's a dude code violation. I, I don't, I don't care yes. if it's little league. There's a, there's a brotherhood thing there, man. You don't, you don't let them again. None of those guys would have rings. No. Without him, yeah, you, none of them. And there's a German word you need to know, Weltanschauung. It's taking pleasure in other people's pain. That is at the heart of progressivism, and we've laid it out case by case today. Hour two is next year, live on the Blaze on demand at CRTV Theology Thursday. Stay tuned. <laughs> And we are back with Hour 2 of the Steve Day Show live on the Blaze on demand at CRTV. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Well, it is a Theology Thursday, our weekly segment devoted to uh, theology or the study of God, because he's kind of important here on the show. And David Limbaugh, uh, who has, of course, written numerous New York Times bestsellers, but the last few years has delved into the theological realm with a series of books, and the latest was just released earlier this month. It's called Jesus is Risen. Paul and the Early Church. And David joins us here today on the show. Good to see you, my friend. How are you? Hey, great. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I know I talked to you when you first started this series, but uh, this audience hasn't heard us have this conversation yet. So let me ask the question again, David. What what was the prompt for you to sort of make this transition in your writing into the, into the strict theological realm? What prompted this? Well, when I became a Christian in my mid-30s, I was so excited about the epiphany that the Bible really is the Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God. I was raised as a Christian, but never really embraced the God of the Bible, even though I uh, believed in God. And it was just because I was negligent in getting around to doing my due diligence more than having investigated it and rejecting it. But so once I did, I was excited and wanted to share that passion. So I started a book on the Old Testament and it didn't get anywhere. I didn't have a platform. And then after writing 15 years worth of columns and five books on politics, I thought I had a better platform. So I went back to this passion and started writing Christian themed books 
First was uh, about my spiritual journey, then Christ in the Old Testament. The last book was about the Gospels. And this is about uh, the book of Acts, the history of the early church, and six of the Apostle Paul's 13 epistles. So I just really have an excitement about the Bible and want to help share that passion and hopefully ignite an interest in, in readers to read the Bible more themselves. What would you say, David, to somebody watching or listening right now, and they're like, you know, it's, it's a dusty old book, and doesn't really relate to the stuff we're dealing with today, and it's kind of Aesop's fables with God talk, and I don't see how it applies to my life now. I think given the book you just completed and the portion of Scripture that you just wrote about, you might be the most uniquely qualified than you've ever been in your spiritual journey to answer those questions because when I took a group of uh, high school students that I was teaching Worldview to last year here in Des Moines, and I took them through the entire book of Acts, the, the contemporary parallels to the conversations we're having every day in the culture, it was stunning. And you, when you go through the book of Acts and then you hop and you, on your Twitter feed and check out the headlines, you truly see what Solomon meant by there is nothing new under the sun. These are the same arguments we were having 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and uh, that's so true. Someone asked me what, what Paul would say if he wrote a letter to the churches today, or if he had an opportunity to meet with some of the churches today and experience some of these problems, I said, interesting question. You know, when he wrote these letters to address mostly local concerns of churches he's, he'd planted, and he treated them as babies that he'd given birth to, that mm -hmm. he and his wife, if he were married, given birth to, and that when they got off the path, he, he was correcting them and bringing them back on. Don't follow the false teachers. Don't fall into this trap of... Uh, being a lure, lured away from the, the true gospel by these false teachers and these secular uh, pagan people who were immersed in sexual idolatry with uh, Aphrodite, the, the sex goddess in the, the city of Corinth. city of Corinth is kind of like the, the Las Vegas of today. And I said what Paul actually would do is he would give them copies of the letters that he'd already written. He may not have known they were going to be, end up in Scripture and have universal applicability, uh, but God knew, and God chose him before the foundation of the world uh, to make him his primary apostle to the Gentiles. And these letters do have universal applicability. And, and as you said, Steve, it's amazing uh, how these problems repeat themselves. No new things under the sun. Human nature has not changed in 2,000, 3,000 years, even though... Our science and technology has advanced. We have not as human beings. David, let's chat for a minute about the selection, which you just uh, alluded to, the selection of Paul to be this apostle. To me, I, I think it really speaks to the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. I, I think some people have this notion that you know they were, they were just sitting up there in eternity and they, they spun the wheel of destiny and... They, 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 you know, they, 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 they flung a dart on the board and it landed on Saul of Tarsus. When, if you, if you look at the first century and the culture of the day, the amount of people who had two things going for them at the exact same time, one, uh, you know, Paul is a revered Jewish scholar, theologian, and apologist. Uh, so he is, he is revered throughout the covenant people of God. He is, therefore, he's going to be welcomed through the front door of every synagogue in the known world, just on reputation uh, alone. But he also had something else going for him. He was a Roman citizen. 
And so that meant he... Uh, the, the, that meant he could go just about anywhere in the civilized world. Uh, he had a certain level of civil rights that the average Jew did not have because of his Roman citizenship. And we see him in the New Testament use those to his advantage when he's falsely accused and imprisoned. So I would imagine the list of people in the first century who were both revered, elite level Jewish scholars, thinkers, and theologians and leaders but were also Roman citizens that gave them the freedom to go anywhere they wanted to within the Gentile or non-Jewish world. I got to believe that's a real small list of people there, David. It's, this isn't a random coincidence at all that this is who God chose. Exactly. And he was also fluent in Greek and he was learned in Greek. And he even recited uh, Greek poetry and Greek writings when he was uh, meeting and arguing with the Greeks uh, and, and evangelizing to them because he his philosophy was that he would meet people on their own level uh, so he could relate to them. Never dilute the gospel, always keep the gospel pure, but not sweat the small stuff. I'll be all things to all people. When I'm around the Jews, I'll observe their dietary laws. When I'm around the Greeks, I'll recite their poems. I can relate to them. Plus, his other qualifications. He was extremely uh, intellectual. He was passionate. He was relentless. Uh, He was steeped in the Old Testament law, as you said, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee, from the uh, tribe of Benjamin. And if you'll read his arguments and his speeches uh, when he's trying to uh, set forth the gospel, he calls on Old Testament scripture, as do some of the others, uh, mm-hmm. Stephen and Peter, uh, when they're writing these, their books or giving their speeches. And uh, he's able to explain how the New Testament is a completion of God's salvation story. It's part two of God's two-part story in his redemption history, the Bible. It also explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, not the abolition of the law. He's the uh, God's fulfillment of all the prophecies made through the Old Testament prophets. Paul has an intimate understanding of that, and so he can explain how Judaism, how Christianity is not a perversion of Judaism. It does not totally destroy it. It just completes it, and he's able more better than anyone else, I think, to make that argument. Talking to David Limbaugh, multiple New York Times bestselling author, his latest book, Jesus is Risen, Paul in the Early Church. He's our guest live today on The Blaze On Demand at CRTV. One of the great challenges that he had to deal with um, as an apostle, as a messenger of, a, of, of, of the truth, of a new way, or the way maybe is a better way of describing it, was the method of communicating to different people in different settings. And I, I think this is something that is a unique challenge for guys like you and I that work in the media and whose opinions are asked for on a frequent basis. But really, anybody who's watching us right now or listening uh, to the podcast later, David, uh, if you have a social media account, you have the exact same challenge as a believer that Paul had as an apostle bringing this truth to the uh, the places of Corinth, which you, you you referenced the fact that Corinth was so depraved, even by Greek standards, they were their own verb. They were to Corinthianize. I mean, even by Greek standards, they thought the Corinthians were a depraved bunch. You, you Ephesus, where the entire economy of the community was based on worship of a false god, for example. Yeah. All right. And yeah. so, so we see, cause I, I get, I get confronted with this a lot and I have to navigate this. You know, at, when, when Paul confronts the, the Judaizers in Galatia who want to worship circumcision, he snarkily tells him, you know, if you love circumcision so much, cut your whole penis off and be especially holy, right? But yeah. then he also says, you know, words of love seasoned with salt. Yeah. And, and, and so he, is he contradicting himself? And one of the ways I've tried to reason through this and have it apply to the way I do my job is, and I thought you alluded to it a few minutes ago, Paul as a parent. You know, I, I need yeah. to, I, my motivation as a parent, 
whether when I'm correcting my son after a game and I'm like, hey, your behavior in that game was not good and I will not tolerate it, is the same as, as I know you tried your best. It wasn't good enough. I'm proud of you anyway. The same motivation when I rebuke or when I lovingly support is, is, is love. I'm rebuking him out of love because I want to get his attention because that behavior just isn't going to be tolerated and it's to his downfall if he continues it. And I, and my, my motivation is love when I, when I have his back, even if he failed at something by the world's standard. And I think rather than try and have this scorecard of how nice can we be nicer than God? Can we be meaner than God? I think to have the motivation of God, which is love, whether it is a harsh rebuke, like you're the, you're a son of the devil, or whether it is words of love seasoned with salt, I think these are lessons of how Paul and his followers had to navigate that culture, our great guidepost for those of us living in this media and social media world today. I totally agree. Um, and Paul... You're right to point out, especially like in First in Corinthians, where he is sarcastic, alternatively, and then and then just totally intimate and and uh, loving. But I, I think what you're saying is correct. Uh, try to find a balance. Be winsome about it, but but tell the truth in love, and don't don't compromise the truth. Just try to be diplomatic about it. Don't try to turn people off and shaming them. Be a Christian scold, but uh, do tell them the truth that they need to know. And they need to understand. I think what you see in these letters of Paul is somebody who's raw. Just he wears his emotions on his sleeve and he's honest about it. You see how intimate, how how personally grieved he is uh, when these people that he in the churches he planted fall away and follow the Judaizers, follow the false teachers. And he's pleading with them to come back. And he's also answering the people who the false teachers who accused him of building himself up and taking money and skimming off the top in these in these uh, aid packets for Jerusalem, which he was going to take back to him. He mm-hmm. said, of course I didn't do that. But in his response, he's sometimes, as you say, snarky, he's sarcastic. But he does it in a way, I think, uh, not to be a smart aleck, but in a way to, to defend himself because he's not personally defending himself. As he says, I'm, not, I'm only boasting in Christ, but it's important that he rehabilitate himself when they've knocked him down, because if he doesn't, the whole gospel could fall because it lives and dies on his credibility. He has to stand up for his own authority, which he received directly from Christ. And he received the gospel, I believe, supernaturally, directly from Christ. And so he, he when he went, uh, when he wrote these letters, he was issuing pure doctrine. And it was critical that they not dilute or pervert that, that gospel. But your point about meeting the people where they are, Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite apologist today mm-hmm. it says in another way he doesn't say i'll be all things to all people as paul said he said know the questioner as well as the question yeah meet him where he is yes and you see you see jesus do this too in the gospels often you see him return a snotty question with a snotty answer or a snotty yeah. question because if you're coming at me from a snotty premise then that there's the difference between not knowing the truth and not wanting to know the truth if you're if you're a skeptic that is earnestly seeking, and even even if even if you think what I believe is is full of bunk, but you're interested in an earnest dialogue, man, I'll sit there and and talk to you mercifully as, and and gently as long as I possibly can, as long as we're treating each other like adults. The minute you come at me with one dimensional straw man arguments and snark, you see Jesus in the Gospels. You see Paul in his letters. That's the tap out. That's when these guys are like, "We're we're we're just we're not doing this. I'm not I'm not dealing with trolls and haters today. See ya." 
And yes, and in, in our situation on Twitter, it may be a little different in that uh, it's out there for the public to see, and we have to be careful as Christians mm -hmm. to be good witnesses. I'm so tempted to be snarky and uh, and unload on people, and I, I try to restrain myself because I think in the long run, uh, it really redounds to the benefit of the message you're trying to convey. Uh, I don't say that I'm perfect at it, but I try to be nice to people, even if they're rude to me. Although sometimes I'm not, I don't deny it. But overall, you, you've got people out there looking at you, and especially if you're a, a conspicuous Christian out there, you're going to be held to a higher standard, and justly so. But when we're uh, articulating our political conservatism, our Christianity, I think while we have to draw sharp distinctions and not allow uh, false messages to be to, to stand, I think we have to try not to meet snark with snark as our first uh, response, if we can help it. One of the things you allude to in this book, and it blew me away when I studied the New Testament really for the first time as a believer looking to have it trans or renew my mind, to use one of the New Testament's expressions, one of Paul's expressions. Yeah. One of the things that just blew, just knocked my socks off is how so many of the arguments I had against the faith when I was a skeptic and so many of the arguments I was now facing from skeptics now that I'm a believer are preemptively deconstructed and just utterly annihilated. Uh, in uh, often, I look at I look at Romans. In my opinion, I think Romans is the greatest single theologic, theological treatise ever unleashed upon mankind. It's like the apex of Paul's understanding with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I look at I look at every theological argument against the faith and Romans hundreds, thousands of years before some of them were brought to bear, confronts them and deconstructs them almost preternaturally. I mean, it's it's incredible when you study these New Testament works, just how critical thinking they really are. Yes, and, and when you read them, it occurs to you that they were written, in, those, in that case, 2,000 years ago, and you're going, why am I just now learning about this? Shame on me. That is me. When I started reading these for the first time, these arguments have been questions have been asked and answered, as you say, preemptively. And one of the things, and, I, and I, Romans is one of the six books I do uh, cover in the book, Jesus is Risen. I, I love Romans, its description of the depravity of man. And also, I, I believe it succinctly states, Romans 1, 18, 19, somewhere around there, that the glories of God's creation are so pronounced and so self-evident that man is without excuse to deny his mm -hmm. existence. I just love that because I believe that everybody innately knows there's God. They actually innately know that the God of the Bible is God, even if they have a primitive understanding of who he is uh, and may not understand the triune nature. But we all have God written on our hearts. And to the extent that we don't know it, it's because I think we're in open rebellion. Maybe not consciously, but to some extent we are. And I, I, I find that just totally fascinating and, and, and irrefutable when you compare it with your own experiences. I find, you know, I know in our culture of convenience today, we like everything in 140 characters or less. Bottom line, everything for me. And not everything in this universe you can do that with. But I do think, and, I've, and I'd like to get your take on this, whether you agree with me or not. And I'm fine if you don't, because I could be wrong about this. But when I get people, I get questions all the time from people, you know, is this a good church? Should I join this church? Should I leave this church? Like I'm some kind of, you know, Inspector 12 in Des Moines, Iowa. But one of the things I try to give people without knowing their situation or visiting where they're worshiping, what's your church? Hey, hey has your church gone through Romans ever? 
And when they did, how did they approach it? Did they take it at face value? Did they skip whole chapters? Because Romans, to me, you can't water it down if you try. It, it's, it is, it is, it's, uh, it, you can't walk into geometry class and say, I thought we were here to do our times tables. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Romans is next level stuff. And I, I, I kind of think you can tell a lot about where a pastor is at by their willingness to confront, tackle this, and teach this to a congregation as it was actually written. What are your thoughts? Uh, I can't deny it. And, and on a broader, uh, more expansive base uh, to answer your question, I think the, the question with churches are whether they are willing to address sin or only willing to talk about salt and light and the Joel Alstein prosperity gospel thing. The gospel doesn't promise us, by the way, we'll... Uh, the more faith we have, the greater uh, our lives will be in terms of uh, material benefits. Quite the opposite. If, we, if we're uh, adherents of the faith and we're faithful, we might experience more persecution or more discrimination or whatever. But addressing sin and addressing the questions of homosexuality and all that, we have this, this uh, pressure in the modern church to conform to the culture. And it's always under the pretense that you have to get word out and expand the base because you want to open up the gospel to all kinds of people in the culture. And unless you do it on their terms, change the music, even dilute the message, you're not going to get them in the door and then they'll never find Christ. Uh, I I have real problems with that if it goes over the line and and starts diluting the gospel or starts running away from sin or or, or saying that anything goes in Christianity or gets away from the gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ for salvation. If it crosses those lines, it's in big trouble. But I do think that you have to strike a balance. It's okay to change the music and all that. As Paul said, don't sweat the small stuff, but um, you've got to be careful not to dilute God. I'm a real stickler on that and addressing the questions of sin. We have to address them uh, because we're all sinners. We fight it uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit every day of our lives. One of the things I think that Paul does that maybe if you haven't really studied what he writes closely is he is unabashed in confronting sin, as you just said, but there's almost a, a rhythm. You see this in Romans, but you see this in all of his epistles. There's almost a rhythm, almost like he can almost sense when those of us that have already been converted, those of us that are growing in our faith are starting to kind of puff our chest out and get a little self-righteous. Yeah. Stick it to the pagans. Stick it to those skeptics. We're scoring points here, baby. Right. You, you yeah. can almost sense he senses it. And then the symmetry of his writing, he will then write when he has so reinforced the believer camp and so girded us up in defending our faith that they can almost smell the self-righteousness in us coming through our pores. He then will turn right and put the, and the double-edged sword, turn it right back on us and say, now, remember, hey, you guys aren't absolved of blame and responsibility in this as well. And I think that's one of the true challenges of studying the New Testament is that dynamic. That's a very good point. And uh, again, he says, don't boast unless you're boasting in Christ. And he's aware that, and he even talks about in chapter seven, I think of Romans, how he does the things he doesn't want to do. And scholars have debated whether he's talking about before he was saved or after. I think it's clearly after he was saved because he wouldn't even care about it before Mm -hmm. he was saved. And so he's saying, Paul, the most ardent Christian now after he's converted, uh, still struggles daily with sin. Uh, he's that's that's really actually ironically or paradoxically reassuring to those of us who know we still have sin in our lives. 
and combat it through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we've got to place ourselves before the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talk about this, this paradox, too, between effort and no effort and grace, everything's free, God does all the work, the Holy Spirit. Yes, but I think we have a, we have a responsibility to place ourselves before the Holy Spirit, practice the spiritual disciplines, and grow more in that way and, and be able to combat sin uh, more effectively and powerful that, powerfully than if we didn't. But once we start getting smug and complacent, not only will it hurt our own spiritual growth, I think it's a real turnoff to other Christians. It's one of the things, as before I was a believer, that turned me off more than anything else. And I can relate to people who still say it today who aren't believers, how Christians act like scolds and, and um, holier-than-thou sanctimonious. We've got to really be careful not to do that because, above all, we recognize that we're sinners, and we were uh, given the undeserved gift mm -hmm. of salvation from Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul makes that point. He's the least of all deserving uh, because of what he did before. But boy, he sure uh, earned it back. Or not earned it back, but he sure did give back in, in great measure after he was converted. Final question, David. As you, got, as you were going through this book and the research and, and the like that you did for it, what, what was it that impacted you the most as a believer going through the exercise of putting this book together? Well, when I, as the historian Paul Johnson says, there's no way to learn a subject better than to write a book on it because you have to really study it intensely. <laughs> and in this case, like you, I've read the Bible and the books of the Bible several times, many times. And so there were no great epiphanies in, in on a micro level. But overall, what happens when I do these books, and what I did this one specifically, I read the book of Acts and these six, six of Paul's epistles, the missionary epistles, the ones he was believed to have written first because I wanted to keep this in a chronological context. You read these in close juxtaposition in a time frame and you really feel it. You really see how things fit together and you really feel Paul's human humanity and how authentic a human being he is. And you see how these problems are so real and they're so related to the things that we experience today. So the more you read this, the more relevant you see it is to your life and the lives of other believers and non-believers as those you approach. So my, my overall uh, profiting from this book is just getting an intimate knowledge of these scriptures. And the closer you are to, to the, the scriptures, the closer you are to God, understanding who God is, and hopefully uh, the better relationship uh, you will have with him. David Limbaugh, the name of his new book, it's the fourth in his series, Delving into Theology, Jesus is Risen, Paul and the Early Church. And uh, it's good to see you, my friend. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you for having me very much. You're welcome. Let's get some reaction to what we just heard from uh, David Limbaugh. Tom, let me start with you, because there's a, broader, there's a broader application here in that a lot of the notions, not all, I mean, some came from Locke and Hobbes and um, you know, Bastiat and others, but a lot of the, 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 the things we take for granted as the foundations of American exceptionalism come right out of the stuff that David and I were talking about today. The idea that your rights come from God are, are, are delved right from the idea you're made in the image of a loving God. The fact that he sent his son to die for you as an individual shows how much the, the notion of the individual matters in the kingdom of God and therefore governments should should align their prominence 
uh, that they that they put on the, the rights of the individual in line with the with what's been demonstrated by the creator of the world through his son. A lot of the civic traditions we have as Americans come out of the conversation that David and I were just having right no, now. Not a lot. Um, most, actually. And this has been documented. I've mentioned uh, him and his book on the sh- uh, show before, uh, the, the now departed uh, Michael Novak, a uh, Catholic writer uh, and thinker who wrote a great book. you got to go out and get it. It's called On Two Wings. Scripture uh, and the reason that was uh, laid out uh, again by uh, Locke, Montesquieu, uh, and others. And uh, uh, Novak uh, uses researchers have done a deep dive into all of the uh, writings of the founding fathers, the, including the uh, the ones that weren't uh, for publication. Their, their diaries, uh, everything they wrote, and and it's conclusive by far that uh, the 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 thing that they pointed to the most as the foundation of the country they were trying to create, hoping to create, was Scripture. Uh, before Locke, before Montesquieu, they were there as the thinkers who ultimately uh, accented that, who in their own lives had riffed on that. But it was ultimately, uh, you, you couldn't have one uh, without the other. It, 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 scripture has always been foundational. And the problem we have these days, I like how David Livell uses the term intimacy. We don't have an intimate relationship with Scripture very much anymore or with our founding uh, documents. That's why we we kind of vaguely understand uh, notions of rights, where they come from, or the the stories laid out um, in Paul's epistles, but we don't know them intimately anymore as a friend and therefore we we aren't prepared in moments this is why catholics have saints uh, 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 protestants have their own versions who people they've been inspired by they hold them dear and when they come to the tough roads in life because of that level of intimacy they know how to act they don't have to stop and say well i don't carry the one no the math is inside them that is so important to get intimate uh with both uh scripture and reason on a level that can deal with this like 11th hour stage of a crisis in culture otherwise we will not be prepared when our moment comes what do you think Aaron? yeah great conversation always love hearing from uh, from david limbaugh and uh, along those lines that's why uh, and todd qu- quotes this often but that's why john adams said uh, our constitution was uh, devised for a moral and religious people and it's wholly inadequate for any other form of people. If there were, uh, if there was a way to devise a secular government from a secular basis that had the amount of prosperity that our country has in the short, relatively short amount of time that we've been around, don't you think we would have seen that by this time in in world history? Mm-hmm. It's because that it, it's because the basis of our founding is in these principles, not just out of. Not just out of the philosophers, but because the philosophers who who brought to light practical—I shouldn't say practical, but broader principles as far as government goes—their um, basis is in scripture. And we we talk about this all the time as well. You bring up this—you know—the scripture itself is not adequate for figuring out what the speed limit should be. But that's in the grand scheme of things; those things are not important. It is the roadmap for every significant framework of how to live with each other on this planet. And the sooner we get back to understanding that, the better off we'll be. More Theology Thursday coming up here next. 
have some breaking news here. Hope you guys don't mind. We take a little time out from Theology Thursday, but uh, there's some breaking news that I want to address. That uh, I just shared this link up on our Facebook page. Just look up Steve Dace on Facebook. You can read this letter for yourself. But uh, Senator Charles Grassley, who is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee from our neck of the woods here in Iowa, the Senator for Life has sent a letter to the U.S. Department of Justice uh, addressed directly to Attorney General Jeff Sessions urging the criminal prosecution of Attorney Michael Evanetti and his client, Julie Swetnick. And in this letter, which I was just reading through during the commercial break, Grassley uh, accuses, and I mean, this thing is, is about 10 pages with numerous footnotes. So a lot of uh, prima facie evidence that uh, the senator offers for these uh, charges. But he wants Evanetti and Swetnick prosecuted for three felonies. Three. They are conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government, material false statements to federal officials, and deliberate obstruction of a federal investigation. So three felonies. Now, remember Julie Swetnick? She was the one that uh, claimed Brett Kavanaugh and his uh, Georgetown prep buddies were targeting women uh, for their marauding band of gang rapists. And she was she did the interview on MSNBC, which spectacularly face planted and MSNBC's reporterette had to come on screen afterwards and say they could not verify any of the claims she made. In fact, they everything all their reporting contradicted her claims. All of this was after what was it a signed affidavit or deposition? And yeah, and you'll recall that um when Avenetti came out with his sworn affidavit, do you remember what I tweeted ten minutes later? He's either going to get disbarred. Yes, somebody's or, done here. Yeah. Yeah. Either Brett Kavanaugh's done here, or he's going to be disbarred. Because these are sworn affidavits, guys. This isn't this isn't a news release. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, this isn't uh, you know Nicole Wallace, former Bushy, who has a Anna Navarro esque another journalist that's permitted Trump to cr- make them insane. This isn't what 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 crazy talking point do I have to give Nicole Wallace to get another booking on MSNBC today? Oh no no no. You're now using the machinations of the law itself. You're not using your platform as an attorney to grandstand. That's called a day that ends in Y in America. Okay, You're using the machinations of the law itself to um, advance your political agenda. So when you start lining up sworn affidavits, this, is not, you know, this isn't minor league stuff now. You're using the machinations of the law. She is swearing, and I read the affidavit. She swears under penalty of perjury that her allegations are true. So either he's lying, either Michael Avenatti is a total ambulance chasing fraud, and I think to use Todd's reference to Occam's Razor from earlier in the show, I think we've got, do we have, is this an isolated incident from Michael Avenatti? Aaron, you wanted to I, say what? I, I want to see if Todd and I are thinking the same thing. I think we probably are. His odds of being the nominee just went up by two or three times. <laughs> Were you thinking the same thing, Todd? I'm with you, brother. I see, I, dis- you. I disagree with you guys. I think he's going to get buried. Oh, but I think I, and that can be true too. And and I have, you know, I've met Jeff Sessions a couple times. I don't know him nearly as well as our buddy Daniel Horowitz does. But um, I was excited when he was nominated for attorney general. I thought it was maybe the best cabinet hire Trump has made. I don't really, you know, the whole Russia collusion and he doesn't fire this guy. I, I can't. 
we have we have barely covered that story on our show because I just can't I I don't know what the truth is, man. And so when when there's been major things like the Nunes Nunez letter, we talked about that and broke that stuff down. But I I just I can't get into the daily. Our our position on that stuff is I'm not going to defend Trump more than he's going to defend himself. So if he wants to release all of the FISA documents and warrants and we can know the truth, and they and they back him up, I'm all in on on that. But until he does that, I don't know what I know. How do I know what I know, and how do I know what I don't know? It's the the story is beyond confusing. So I'm I'm not into run Jeff Sessions because he didn't fire this guy or that guy. I I don't know what the truth of that stuff is. If Jeff Sessions doesn't follow up on this, I'm all in on fire his ass fire. in three seconds. Yeah, fire his ass in three freaking seconds. Preach. Second, all Second, in favor. Third. Yeah. Say yeah. aye. Yeah. Absolutely. And the ayes have it. It's unanimous. At some point, you know, what does Shannon Joy, our our contributor on our Day Screw Roundtable, periodically, what is her? She's got this thing on her show there in New York where she won't get into these stories until there's actual evidence someone's going to be held accountable for once. Isn't, is, am I? Am I? Is that kind of her position? Am I paraphrasing yeah, I, it? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's actually a pretty good rule of thumb. Yeah. Because her her kind of thing is again similar to what we just said about Trump and the wiretap, and he's falsely accused and everything else. How would why he's the president of the United States? He can declassify anything he wants, anytime he wants. So, what good would me, other than it's good for my audience to grow it, other than that? But why should I spend any of my political capital or credibility, however little I have, defending him when he has all the power to release all the evidence that would defend himself far better than I ever could? And I don't know what that evidence says until he does, right? Right. You should not. That's sort of what Shannon is saying here. Well, these people swore under oath these allegations. They submitted these allegations to the U.S. government. At some freaking point, the American people need to see somebody held accountable for this crap. Enough. You don't just sit there. If we're going to be at a point in time in history now, well, it's, you know, it's a sworn affidavit and a threat of perjury day, so everybody oh. lies. It's just like a press release. They're just talking point. You know what? Then, uh, then officially change the stars and bars to a freaking gaggle of bananas because yes. we are officially yes. a banana republic now. If we're going to let this ambulance chasing fraudster use the machinations of the law not just his title of lawyer to get on cable news which is the blackest of black holes in a culture going dark and to spew more bile but we're going to let him use the official machinations of the law itself to defraud the american people and assassinate the character of people and nothing will happen no charges no accountability whatsoever when we know the guy just got a four and a half million dollar judgment an eviction judgment against his from his landlord from not paying his rent he's got millions of others of fines and liens of, of the guy is a fraud and our cable news networks just allowed him a place of unfettered prominence in the culture. For months this went on. Every day, he was doing multiple shows a day. MSNBC and CNN in the same day. This went on and on and on. And now we're going to let him go to the point, you know, with the, what's the name of the children's book, if you give the mouse a cookie? Why are we shocked that we let a fraudster 
fraud his way into a national television gig. $174 million over a 64-day period of worth of media that he did. It's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So we're going to let him gain $175 million of free media, and then we're going to turn around and allow him, when we didn't discipline him before, and now we're going to let him use the actual machinations of the law itself to fraud the American people? Hell to the no. And if Sessions and those people at the, at the DOJ, they aren't on this in, in 10 minutes. Tomorrow I'm coming on here, fire them all. Enough is enough is enough. People need to be held accountable for their actions. And the American people are just freaking sick of this crap, Todd. That. Earlier in the week, uh, when I we were talking about Cory Booker, uh, and he was dealing with what I still believe, I haven't heard anything to the contrary, were anonymous accusations of what he may or might not did in terms of a uh, somehow accosting a uh, uh, another man uh, back in 2014, I think it was going to believe, was some sort of sexual advance. My comment then was, we need to take justice as far as it's appropriate, uh, along the same lines of Steve is talking about, to stop this kind of thing. And then we should let Mercy kick in, hoping he learned his point. In this specific case, I'm in Aragorn at Helm's Deep. Uh, no mercy, uh, for none will be offered to you. You n- need to absolutely follow through on this as a matter of pure justice that does not apply to uh, Democrat, Republican, slave, nor free, purple or green, um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh or not Kavanaugh. This is about all of us now. Otherwise, Steve is exactly right. You have become a slave to tyranny if you will let the very system of government that you are, by definition, supposed to be the boss of so easily put you under its Thumb. I am so pleased. This actually gives me a degree yeah. of hope that people are waking up because this is everybody whose instinct right here is, you know, uh, go tribe, live in your silo. You've got it all wrong. Do not do this because you want to see uh, the specific guy like Avidity Sink, even though he is everything Steve said it is. Either we do this or. I already believe, I absolutely believe the revolution is already at hand. We have lost our system of government. But this is just, if we do if we do not follow through on this, if we are not successful in this front, we, we, it's just going to be that much harder to recover. Yeah. Um, if, if this is not followed up on immediately, James Madison or any one of uh, the, the, founding, the founding fathers is going to uh, come back from the dead, uh, go over to Washington, um, say cool constitution, bro. Uh, also I'm out of toilet paper. Uh, that, that, that is, that is where we will be at. I'm totally with Steve. This is banana Republic. We, we are already well past the banana Republic stage of this. I, I, okay. We're, since we're already giving hot takes here at this point under our law and order president with one of the most culturally conservative, I guess you could say, um, Attorney generals, at least of my lifetime, probably the most of my lifetime, one of the most of of you guys' lifetime, if he does not follow up on this, uh, is it time for us to start kneeling during the national anthem? Because this is, this is, this is, if if this does not, if if Jeff Sessions does not follow through on this, there's no, what, what are we, what are we doing? What are we fighting for? There's the freaking attorney general 
who is supposed to be a culture warrior in a Republican administration, and he doesn't stand up, if he does not stand up for the rule of law, what's what's the point? I did the interview yesterday with Jonathan Dunn, who does a show here at the, uh, for the Blaze Radio as well. And one of the things that came up in our conversation is that um, he mentioned that he did a tour of America last year, uh, 16 cities across the country. And he talked to people, Republicans, Democrats, apolitical. And when, when partisan politics was divorced from the conversation and they just discussed principles, I mean, how much and how often they agreed. And he asked me, how do we tap it? How does your country tap into that? And I said, I, I told Jonathan that the problem we have is that right now there is not a vehicle in our culture for the kinds of people you talked about to act on those shared principles outside of the partisan political process. And that all of the vehicles our founders gave us a free press, which we spent a lot of time talking about Yet again, with what's going on with Megyn Kelly, how that's polluted in the first hour, okay? So we have an abrogated church who, you know, right now the church is going insane over Trump. All right, we've got got people of previous virtue surrendering their virtue to shill for Trump. And then we've got people of previous virtue becoming social justice warriors and abandoning the gospel to oppose Trump, all right? So right now the church is abrogating its responsibility. Right now, our, the free press long abrogated its responsibility and is now hostile to its original founding mission. I mean, many of the institutions that our founders, the founders didn't create the church. They, they gave it a place of freedom within the community and within the culture to transcend these partisan political divides to do its job. But it doesn't, the church doesn't want to do its job right now. Media doesn't want to do its job. Academia is hostile to its founding. The, the founders did create the education system and the free media, all right, but the whether the, whether they created the institutions like they did with academia and the media, whether they provided a place of transcendent freedom for those pre-existent institutions like they did the family or the church, the amount the public institutions that the founders gave us access to to protect us from something like what's happening to our culture right now from happening are, are not available, and so. You can have all the people you want that have shared principles. If they don't have a vehicle by which to act on them, it's an irrelevant exercise. They're blogging. They're, they're putting a Facebook status up there. They're, they're going out into the wilderness and screaming out into the ether. And, if it, and it's, the, it's the political version of it if a tree falls in the forest. We need one of these damn institutions to do its job. One of them. And Mr. Sessions, you're Mr. Law and Order. Show us. If an obvious fraudster like Michael Evanetti is so able to co-opt the system, we know the media is so far gone. And it's so bad. Cable news is so bad. The LA Times and the Daily Beast have to take a timeout of, of shilling for Democrats to say, guys, this is even beyond the standards we should accept here. This guy is a piece of S. This is a piece of poo. He's the Greek word, Paul. since we're citing Paul so often this hour, the Greek word Paul uses in Philippians to describe his thoughts on man-made religion. Some interpretations say it's the Greek word for a human, Greek word for the slang for human waste. Okay? That's what Michael Evanetti is. And now even others on the left are saying there's no way we're getting to bed with this guy. We're, we, we have to have some standards here. 
If you allow this knuckle-dragging, craven opportunist, Mr. Sessions, if you allow him to walk away from this and say, all I got was this lousy T-shirt and $175 million in free media, the incentivization for worse versions of Avenetti to come will arise. Absolutely. Worse sweatniks to come will arise. No! Someone, will someone in this country that, that has taken an oath of office, someone, one freaking person with some balls and some power, simply say no. No. No, 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 no. no. I'm taking my belt off. I'm going to break my foot off. We don't do that here. And someone's going to pay. And it's going to be you. And people like you, Mr. Avenetti, who do things like this. You're going to pay for this. Because here's what will happen. You know, I got in trouble for this. One day I came into work when I was still doing local radio and my general manager calls me into his office and he's like, dude, what did you say yesterday? And it's when George Tiller got killed. You guys remember who George Tiller was? He yeah, was Kermit Gosnell yeah. before Kermit Gosnell. He was the Kermit Gosnell of Kansas. And um, a, a fake pro-life activist because taking and risking innocent life because he went into a church and just started shooting. Other people could have been killed or hurt. That, that you're, you're a fake pro-life activist when you risk innocent life to defend innocent life, okay? So a fake pro-life activist went in there and, and shot him in cold blood in a church with other people in there. Killed him. And that was the news of the day. I was addressing it on my show. I made it very clear. That's a wicked act. That is murder, evil, wrong. Self-defense is one thing. Vigilanteism is another, okay? But then I also made this point, that the sad truth of Mr. Tiller's murder, and I called it a murder, meaning this was a wrongful killing of, taking of human life. The sad truth of Mr. Tiller's murder is that there are babies today that are going to be born in Kansas who otherwise would not have been born if he were still alive. And because the law itself should have shut him down from what he was doing a long time ago. And when the law will not enforce itself and those who are given charge to enforce the law will not do so, eventually John Browns, we just had this conversation yesterday, eventually John Browns will emerge and take the law into their own hands. Where you create in a Petri dish, in a vacuum, you create the environment that causes this infestation. You seeded the, you germinated the ground. You planted the seeds or at the very least watered them. And again, if you continue to allow folks like Evanetti to engage in obvious fraud, to use the machinations of the law itself to further their fraud, and they walk away unscathed, you will not only incentivize worse, worse fraudsters than Evanetti in the future, you will incentivize vigilantes who will eventually say, you know what, man, if you won't, I'm just going to take this into my own hands when I do this myself. Tell me I'm wrong. Nope. No. Jeff, do your damn job. If you have time today, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Thank you to all of you that have done so already. Click that subscribe button, too, if you have time today, please. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Until tomorrow, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Oh, 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 oh,